This is Pure Nonfiction, the show where we talk to documentary makers to get the story behind the story. I'm your host, Tom Powers, the artistic director of the Doc NYC Festival and documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival. Our guest today is Don Porter, who traded a career as a lawyer to make documentaries. I, I don't know. I just had this, like, is this all I'm going to do with my life? Mm. I'm going to be a lawyer at a nice firm with nice people. I wasn't doing any bad, but I wasn't doing any good. Dawn's skills were evident in her first film, Gideon's Army, about public defense lawyers in the South. The film was broadcast on HBO and selected for the 2013 Doc NYC shortlist, an annual showcase of outstanding documentaries. Her new film, Trapped, returns to the South, looking at how state laws are forcing the closure of abortion clinics. Trapped has a timely release as the Supreme Court determines the future of abortion rights in a verdict expected this summer. For all her work in the South, Dawn is actually from the Northeast. Like our first guest, Kahani Cooperman, Dawn raised a family for many years in Montclair, New Jersey. Last year, her husband, Dave Graff, took a job at Google and their family moved to San Francisco. I caught up with Dawn as she made a visit to New York. This interview was recorded in Manhattan at the School of Visual Arts, where I teach in the MFA Social Documentary Film Program. I started the conversation by asking Dawn about her previous career as a lawyer. Uh, I went to Georgetown Law School, and I actually always wanted to be a lawyer. I kind of actually, that's not true. I wanted to be a lawyer and a stewardess when I was little. So I wanted to, I don't know, travel. And I, I guess maybe I wanted to be a superhero. I wanted to travel and fight crime. And uh, I was I was happy being a lawyer. I worked at Baker and Hostetler, a law firm in Washington, D.C., and so this was in the mid-90s. And Washington, D.C. was a great place to be. It was a lot of politics happening. The Clinton administration was there. It was a very exciting place to be. And I did that for five years. And uh, to tell you the truth, my best friend uh, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And she was the woman in the office right next door to me. And uh, she was diagnosed, and she died within six months. Ugh in her 30s and it was this real makes you evaluate yeah it was the most shocking you know like I, I lost my father when I was 12 but this was the first peer who passed away mm. the other thing was her parents lived far away and she wasn't married so a lot of her friends we became her caregivers mm. at the end of her life so we got to spend a lot of time with her and with each other and we spent a lot of time talking about what we want to be in life. And I remember very distinctly after she died, I was in the office. I was in the law library at the firm where we both worked. And I opened up. We still used books then. You know, it was in the olden times. Um, and I opened up one of the reference books and there was a sticky with her handwriting. She had very distinctive handwriting. And it just like kind of, I, I thought, I, I don't know. I just had this, like, is this all I'm going to do with my life? Mm. I'm going to be a lawyer at a nice firm with nice people and carpeting and good pens. Um, and I wasn't really, I wasn't doing any bad, but I wasn't doing any good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and I also wasn't, um, 
she had been saying for a while that she wanted to like move and do something. And I said, you know, and I talked to my husband. I was married for like seven seconds by then. Like Dave, I was the first year of being married. And I said, the next exciting thing that happens, I'm going to say yes to. And literally two months later, I got offered a job at ABC, but it was in New York. Dawn and her husband made the move to New York. At ABC, she moved into the Standards and Practices Division, making sure the on-air journalism upheld the network's guidelines. I saw how influential media is and how you could do an interview that is completely factually, legally accurate, but the pictures can give a different impression. Mm. And I was really struck by that. And I loved being in an edit room. And I loved reading the scripts and seeing how everything was put together. So I did that. I was at ABC for almost for seven and a half years. Let me ask you about that. As you're vetting journalistic pieces, video journalism, what kind of training did you get? Did you have a mentor there? How did you get guidance and what was right and wrong? It's really interesting because, you know, in the law, we do our best to analyze the facts and evaluate the current law principles. In journalism, it's kind of the same thing. You have reporters, there's technical facts that are accurate, but there's also just being fair to people. And and then there's a lot of questions about what images are being used. So, you know, we would get at the beginning of the week a script for a story. And then about the middle of the week, the first screener would come. And sometimes they would be so shockingly different. You know, you'd read something that looked fine. And then in the middle of the week, you'd see the pictures. So, you know, a story about crime. And then if the, the pictures come and it's all like a bunch of black kids, like that's the kind of thing I would flag and be like, are these the actual kids? Or did you put crime in some stock footage thing? So we did a lot of that. Um, but I didn't have any training <laughs> as a journalist. Um, and I asked my my boss at the time, like I would be like, why did you hire me? You know, there's all these reporters. And she liked that I came from a different background. I think she saw that bringing kind of the rigor of a legal training. Um, and she's like, just be curious, ask the questions you would wanna know. And, um, and so that has been incredibly helpful being in documentary, ask the questions you wanna know the answers to. Did race come up a lot as a factor? It came up all the time. And I think actually I gained a lot of empathy for how stories can be developed without bad intent, but can have a really bad impact. And you don't, nobody wants to be the race police. <laughs> I mean, maybe some people do, but I don't. Yeah. But I think just the fact of my presence being a black woman in the room probably made people, I probably cut down on 50% of the bullshit before it got to me because people were like, oh, that's wrong. Whereas they might not have thought about it before. And, and so I think it's really important to say that to folks is a lot of, what happens, particularly in putting news pieces together, is people are working quickly. And so I don't, I think that there's far less bad intent than the public understands. I think sometimes there's a little laziness, sometimes there's people working quickly. Sometimes people recycle the same images because that's what comes up when you do the, the search. From ABC, Dawn moved to A&E, working on longer form nonfiction shows. At ABC, most of the pieces I worked on were like 8 to 12 minute 2020s. 
occasionally a world news piece, occasionally a nightline, which would be longer. But at A&E, they were hours. They were TV hours, so 42 minutes, 50 seconds. And so I really saw beginning, middle, and how you craft a story. And you can start to see very quickly what's a good show and what was going to fall apart. Uh-huh. Um, you know, if you read... I don't know, thousands yeah. of these over the years. Yeah. So, but between those two jobs, I spent more than 13 years reading other people's stuff and watching other people's pieces. And you get a really good sense of pacing, who's a good interview. So like that, I feel like is my film school. And then I realized I just still, I wasn't seeing the kind of stories I was really interested in. And I was like, I, I was like, how hard could this be? I've seen other people do it. <laughs> Um, so I decided I decided I wanted to make a film before I had a topic. So then you make a big career transition that you leave behind full-time job, you know, with all those benefits. Direct deposit, health insurance, vacation, paid. Yeah, yeah I don't even know what these words are. <laughs> and and you go off on your own to to make your own independent film. I I had a friend at the Ford Foundation, and she was new there, so she didn't know anything either. And I said, you know, I really want to make a documentary, and I pitched her an idea, and she said, we don't fund that, but what else are you interested in? And um, and so then we got to talking about these public defenders, and she introduced me to John Rapping, and he invited me to go to Alabama to watch his training program. So I flew there, down They are training legal aid lawyers. Yes. I don't know if that's the right term. But. Yeah. They're training young public defenders who are either just graduating, no experience, or in their first three years of practice. And what he does is he brings, at the time it was 30 kids, and they go for a two-week boot camp training, and then they go back to their respective jurisdictions. They're not kids. They're, they're, they're 20. They're, I yeah. mean, they're 24. They have so law degrees. They have law degrees. Yeah. yeah they're, I mean, they're potty trained. You know, <laughs> they're they're out of diapers, but barely. barely. So I didn't really know what I was going to see. I'd never been to Alabama. I was born and raised in New York City. You were scared. I was terrified, actually. I was like, my husband's like, you're doing what? You're going to Alabama in July to watch criminal defense lawyers? And I was like, yep, that's my, that's how I'm using my vacation time. I was still at A&E at this point. And I got down there and, you know, I was a lawyer, but I was not a criminal defense lawyer. What do you think of criminal defense lawyers? I thought what everybody else thinks. I thought that they represented guilty people and how sad for them that they had to be in this cesspool of misery. So I get there and there's all these bright, shiny, happy-faced people who love their work and they're so excited and they're talking about the constitution and they're talking about helping people. And I kind of just burst into tears and I, I felt like this is what I should be doing with my life. I was like, you know, when I was a lawyer, I liked it, but I liked the security of it probably the most. Uh-huh. I was not like running to work because I was helping somebody. and But I also didn't understand it. It's like, why are they so freaking happy going to jail in this horrible system? So that really is what started it. I was just really curious, having been a lawyer, knowing a little bit about criminal justice and how bad it was. And so I filmed them for that first, over that first two weeks. And actually, I only had one week of vacation to dedicate to this. So I stayed the first week and I got really lucky. You know, I do think that there are documentary gods out there. Mm. And I think that people who do documentary, a lot of them are 
just good people. So I had hired this local crew because I did know enough from working at two different networks that you hire people who know what they're doing. Mm. Don't try and do it yourself if you have no idea what you're doing. So I hired this great guy to do sound, right? And he was just a day pickup sound. And he turned out to be an incredible guy who was also a director and he also filmed. So at the end of the first week, I was like, oh, man, that was great. Patrick, I got to go home. And he said, can I, do you mind if I film it the rest of the next week too? And I was like, I don't mind, but I don't have any money. And he said, you know, I feel like this is, he's, I'll never forget this. He said, I feel like this is really special. And if you get the money, you'll pay me. And if not, I really am interested in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And he filmed for free for the next week. Gideon's army largely focuses on two lawyers working in Georgia. One is Brandy Alexander, who wears her heart on her sleeve. Here she is discussing a client. This kid is in high school. He's so smart. So incredibly smart. That's him. He's 17. He was arrested for armed robbery. This is, I can't even believe that they arrested him for it. I really don't believe that. And it's a 10-year minimum mandatory sentence. And win, lose, or draw, tears will fall. Because this kid is, I don't think he's guilty. I don't, I think he's innocent. And here's the second lawyer prominent in Gideon's army, a fierce combatant named Travis Williams, making his closing argument in court. That's the beauty of this system. It's set up to give people the presumption of innocence, to give them an opportunity to not just be heard, but hold the state accountable. You want to take my liberty, you got to do it right. And if you don't, acquit. The Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution guarantees it. As I've made my objections throughout this trial, it's the Make sure that this kid gets a fair trial. It's not a big case, is what they say. They are saying it. They have, they have the, the gall to say that this is not a big case. There are huge consequences. This boy will become a convicted felon. That's the reality of it. That's what this case represents. Thank you. Travis was very difficult. Like he didn't want to be filmed and he was suspicious, Um, but there was just something about him that I was very curious about. He's really like a big fighter, a big personality. Um, He was a committed guy. He describes in the film that he he wants to tattoo the cases he lost on his back. And he does. (laughs) And so I I thought that people could access the world of injured defense through them because they are not precious about it. They're not holier than thou. They're just like doing what they love to do, what they feel compelled to do. You know, they both come from really poor backgrounds. And so I think if you're a rich person who like goes to do work in a poor neighborhood, it's not quite the same as coming from those neighborhoods. So they are not romantic about Mm -hmm. their clients. Mm -hmm. So they can kind of speak to them in a way that's like, don't bullshit me. But also they they stand up for people. And I thought that people could actually really relate to that feeling of wanting to stand up for people. 
but also to see, you know, what it feels like when you don't have any control over your life. And I think that's what the real story of the criminal justice system is that people can actually relate to, which is what happens when nothing is in your control. And by nothing, I mean, if you are arrested, you can't control who arrests you, you can't control the public defender, you can't control the court system. And it has so much less to do with innocence or guilt than with you being swept up into a big machine. You must have had a certain set of hopes going into it about what this film could do. And how did those come out? I actually had no hopes. (laughs) I mean, I was actually quite naive about what would happen as a result of the film. And we started, I, I did know I wanted to screen it. I thought people could use it as a tool, but I had no idea the possibility of the impact. For a very long time, I didn't have an, an idea of that. When so, did you start thinking about it? I think, to tell you the truth, it was at Sundance. Where the uh, film had its world premiere. Where the film had its premiere. First of all, the lights go down, and I had never really seen the film with a big audience before. Mm-hmm. And I was like, shit. <laughs> If this is not well, it's going to be really embarrassing. This is going to be miserable if people don't like this movie. And so the whole time, I was just like, my face was hot, and it was like misery watching. But after the film, and all the, the people in it were there, and they, they gave them a standing ovation, and um, people were crying. And this uh, kid stands up. He's probably in his 20s. And he said, thank you for making this movie. I'm a public defender. And the audience was like, yay! (laughs) And then he goes, see, that never happens. And he said, I'm going to show this to my parents because I have not been able to explain to them why I love my job so much. And I think for a lot of public defenders, people who do jobs where the subject is controversial, they don't talk about their work. Mm. And so what these movies do is they give people an opportunity to see how much good they're doing, but also for people to see them and all the sacrifices they make. So after the film, they got pretty wildly popular. John Rapping's program got a $2 million grant from the Justice Department, from Mm. Attorney General Eric Holder, to train more public defenders. And I still hear today constantly from people, it really impacted them. Mm. And it's shown all over the place. We've been all over the world with it. It was cited, this is my favorite lawyer geek tidbit, Attorney General Eric Holder cited it in a brief about the need for increase of funding. It's like footnote eight. So my friend Kirsten, who's also a lawyer, and she's like, did you see footnote eight? I'm like, I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't read the footnotes. So she's like, look at footnote eight. It cites Gideon's army as a, you know, a source. We'll be back with more from Dawn Porter in a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. Pure Nonfiction is brought to you by SundanceNow.club. Watch hundreds of documentary films selected by head curator Tom Powers and guest curators such as Alex Gibney, Susan Sarandon, and Ira Glass. Now on Doc Club, you can watch Don Porter's film Gideon's Army, an eye-opening look at the criminal justice system filled with gripping courtroom drama. Download the Doc Club app or go to docclub.com to sign up for a free month. While working in the South, Dawn became alarmed by a wave of state laws that were forcing abortion clinics to close. 
They're known as TRAP laws, an acronym that stands for the Targeted Regulation of Abortion Providers. Dawn began filming at clinics threatened by these laws. I remember <laughs> when you told me a couple of years ago that one of your next projects was going to be about abortion clinics. I have to say, in the back of my head, I was thinking, like, Dawn, is this really a good idea for... In the front of your head. You said, <laughs> is this really a good idea? I said that out loud. You said it out loud, right. which I um, appreciated because you're like... There's 12th in Delaware. There's after Taylor. What story? <laughs> you said it out loud. Gotcha. Okay. So, <laughs> um, you know, both of those films are incredibly beautiful and um, lyric, and I admire the filmmakers. I think that they each tell a very important story about part of the issue. What I was really attracted to that's at the center of Trapped is the politics of abortion and how we know about doctors and clinics that are killed or bombed or threatened. But the biggest threat to abortion clinics is conservative state legislators. And as a lawyer, this idea that a state could knowingly pass laws that are probably unconstitutional, I just couldn't wrap my mind around that. And so I wanted to figure out how that could possibly be the case. But also, you know, there's a significant race and poverty issue that I think neither one of those films really explores. And I was interested in that. So the idea of having Dr. Parker, who's black, grew up in poverty, didn't do abortions for the first 12 years of his life because mm -hmm. he was a very conservative Christian, to have him fly home to the South and fly around the different clinics providing abortions primarily to poor women, not only, but primarily. I just thought this is such a, this is the majority, the people who are actually most impacted by these laws are lower income women of color. And that is not the face of the abortion fight mm -hmm. at all. Here's a clip from Trapped as the African-American doctor, Willie Parker, talks to women seeking abortions in Alabama using language mandated by state laws. We have information that the state has compiled in this packet of extra things, other things, information that you can know that might help you with your decision. You can take this if you want, but you don't have to. But I'm obligated by law to offer it to you. I'm required by law to tell you that by having an abortion, it can increase your risk for breast cancer. There's no scientific evidence to support that. Now, the state requires me to tell you that if you were having this procedure, there's the risk of complications. I think that's a good thing to know the risk. The state requires me to tell you that you can have heavy bleeding that can be life-threatening and can require you to be transferred to the hospital and need a blood transfusion. If you're having bleeding, uh, that can only be controlled with removing your uterus. You'd have to have a hysterectomy and you lose your ability to have babies in the future. Those are all the risks associated, but guess what? Those are the exact same risks that's associated with having a baby. It is to say that you're not taking any extra health risk, so abortion is extremely safe. Trapped also looks at the clinic Whole Woman's Health in Texas that is now the focus of the case before the Supreme Court. I asked Dawn to explain what's at stake. Before Justice Scalia passed away, the, the conventional wisdom was the case would be decided five to four one way or another. The case is the most significant 
abortion rights case in the last two decades. So there was Roe v. Wade, which said you cannot regulate abortion in the first trimester at all. It was a bright line standard. In 1993, there's a very big case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that said, well, you can for the health and safety of, of patients. And that opened the door to mm. this legislation. So all of these state legislators say they're for health and safety. So this case, 20-some years after the Casey, Casey decision, will discuss whether or not it's constitutional. To These regulations are constitutional. It could say there's no constitutional right. It could overturn Roe. Um, it could say there's a constitutional right, but these laws don't impact it enough. Or it could say these laws are unconstitutional. So the, the law in question is a Texas law. If the law is upheld, more than half of the clinics in Texas will close. So today there are about 19 clinics in a very large state, you know, from Tip to tip, Texas is 900 miles. Oh. <laughs> so it's already very difficult. You know, I saw people... And for perspective, so there's 19 clinics total in, in, the, in the, state? Whole state. In yeah. the whole state. In the whole state. And how does that compare to 10 years ago or, or 20 years ago? Before the law went into effect, there were about 40 clinics um, right before the law so went into effect. So already this law is... It's already cut by half. The 10 years before that, there were three times that many clinics. But over time, the regulations have been so expensive and so difficult to comply with that clinics are closing. So now you really have clinics that are clustered in only the largest metropolitan areas in Texas, which means you have huge areas of the state that have no clinical access. The other thing to think about is the geography just of the South in general. So while there's only one clinic in the whole state of Mississippi, there's really only three in Alabama. So people are driving from Mississippi to Alabama. They're driving from Texas to New Mexico. They're driving hundreds and hundreds of miles in order to access Making a clinic. Making a difficult situation a lot worse. You know, in addition to that, there a lot of these states have waiting periods. So you have to drive your 300 miles, then wait 48 to 72 hours before you can have a procedure. So you either have to take off from work and stay for three days, or make that trip several times back and forth. So an extra penalty for anyone who's poor. That's right. Well, I have to say, I told you before that I showed this film to a small private audience in Miami and included uh, several young women uh, students who are starting to be OBGYNs and told me that they hope to be abortion providers someday. And clearly this film meant a lot to them. I think in the same way that you described Gideon's Army meaning a lot to public defenders. I love that so much. I think there are a lot of people doing work that benefits the rest of us, and they, they can be invisible. And, you know, seeing people be proud of what they do. When I'm done with this movie, I get to go home. I'm not going to be an abortion provider for the rest of my life. Um, so this period of my life is temporary. Mm. I'll move on to some other topic. Um, but they're not moving on. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm still really endlessly fascinated by what keeps them going. So, um, and the students, the abortion providers are aging out. You know, a number of them are over 50, over 60, over 70. And uh, a lot of hospitals are not, a lot of medical schools are not teaching abortion. So uh, the next 
big issue we're going to have is a huge lack of providers. So even if you have a clinic, if you don't have any doctors, it's a right without a remedy. Um, and I think that that's, a, that's something we should be concerned about. Well, I apparently gave you some uh, warnings about uh, making this <laughs> film, and I'm very glad that you did not heed my caution again. <laughs> again. <laughs> I want to thank Dawn Porter for being our second guest on Pure Nonfiction. Our next episode focuses on making a murderer. The directing team behind this hit Netflix series, Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demos, joined me for a live conversation at New York's IFC Center. It did at times get really difficult for Moira and me. You know, our families were really concerned about us um, with good reason and wanted assurances from us that we really couldn't provide. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., coordinating producer Rachel fishman Federson, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review, even a short one. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.